Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look down a little ways, you saw that the topic this morning is mission. And that probably makes most of us in this room a little bit uncomfortable. And in that we're doing a series on spiritual formation, some of the Christians in the room may be asking, well, how is that spiritual formation? How is mission something that I do to become more like Jesus. It's easy to think of Bible reading, of meditation, of some of the things that we've talked about so far in this series, but mission is something a little bit different. And mission is something that we have to learn as Christians is that something that we, it's something that we embody, not something that we necessarily do. And as a church, it's something that the church embodies. It's not a program. It's not an aspect of the church's existence. It is who the church is. And as we as individual Christians, as we as a church, in a sense, become more of who we are, that's spiritual formation. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, that word may make you even more nervous because it sounds very colonial. It sounds very presumptive. But what this is and what we're talking about is not the church trying to impart our values upon you. It's not us trying to get you to change, but it's us talking in an in-house way about how we need to change. That mission really isn't trying to presume upon you, but it's trying to serve you. It's us picking up the towel, so to speak, as a church to wash the feet of those outside. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So as we do so, let me pray for us as we get started. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would clear the minefields uh, that I might step on this morning, uh, both for those who are insiders and those who are outsiders looking in this morning. Father, that you would get my words out of the way and that, that you would speak to us, that you would preach to us, that you would join us in such a way that the church would not feel dour, would not feel severe, but would feel like a party like a banquet, that you would invite us to your party. Father, I pray that we would live and listen unto that, unto that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed, tells the story of a very tiny village in World War II France. And Miss Trome is one of the main characters of this story, and she's the wife of the local pastor, and this was a parish, and so it had one pastor for the little village. So everyone knew who she was, and everyone knew the pastor. And one night, she hears a knock at her door. And when she opens the door, she realizes that it's a tiny Jewish woman who's knocking on the door. She was half frozen. She was scared. She was hungry because the Gestapo was chasing her. Now, the law in France at that time was that anyone harboring a refugee would themselves be put to death. 
But as a Christian, she knew she had to do something, and her first words out of her mouth were naturally, come on in. And in the coming days, that phrase began to circulate around the village and even around France, naturally, come on in. And in this village, at great risk to their own lives, they gave refuge and protection to thousands of Jewish people. They took them into their homes. They fed and sheltered them right under the noses of the Gestapo. Every home hid strangers, not for days, not for weeks, but for years. And on the evening of February 13, 1943, a Presbyterian meeting was happening. This is the regional body of the Presbyterian church. And a large car stopped in front of the meeting, and Pastor Andre Trome, the wife, the husband of the wife we talked about, he was leading the community in their efforts. He was arrested along with his assistant pastor, and they were going to be taken to a POW camp, and ultimately they were. But the police, first of all, took them back to the house. And when, he took, when they took Pastor Andre away, they took him to his house to get his things and to say goodbye to his wife, Magda. And when Magda opened the door, she offered them dinner. And her friends would ask her in the days to come, how could you bring yourself to offer dinner to the people who were taking your husband away to a POW camp, maybe even ultimately to death? And her answer was very simple. It was dinner time, and everyone was hungry, and the food was ready. So naturally, come on in. Their hospitality, their orientation to the other was such that their village gained a reputation all over France for their generosity and for taking risks on behalf of other people. Every house participated. Every house made room for the outsider. Now, perhaps you and I won't be called upon to give of our resources at the risk of our death, but it will cost us. It will cost us time. It will cost us money. And at times it will cost us the comfort of having, being a part of a church where everyone's story sounds very familiar, where everyone's problems are familiar, where everyone's theology is very reassuring. But each week in worship, we're offering supper. It's dinner time. And the church should be saying naturally, come on in. You see, Jesus was very orthodox. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. His views of sexuality, very traditional. He was religious. And yet those on the edges, those who were marginalized, those who seemed most unlikely to gravitate to him were absolutely captivated by him. While those who were patrolling the boundaries were repulsed. Now, the setting. Jesus is at a meal, and he's at a meal with respectable people, and his fellow guests have sought out the best seats in the house, the seats of honor. And the host had followed these customary practices of putting together the list of invitations based upon social currency. The parties and the meals in those days uh, that you were invited to gave you a sense of your place in the world, your sense of your place in the social hierarchy. High-status people were invited to high-status parties. Medium-status people were invited to medium-status parties. And if you had no status, then you were not invited to a party at all. Now, isn't it great that we've moved beyond that sort of transparent classism? Isn't it great that that doesn't go on in our day and age? Well, 
Bill Bishop, a journalist, wrote in his book a few years ago, The Big Sort, how the clustering of America is tearing us apart. And he argues that this idea of e pluribus unum, out of many become one, this idea of the melting pot of America is becoming more and more of a myth, that Americans are living more and more isolated lives, intentionally sequestering themselves from people who are different from them, economically, ethnically, ideologically. And he says most Americans are seeking out, gravitating towards those who share their life worlds made up of old fundamental differences such as race, class, gender, but also now, more than ever, personal tastes, styles, opinions, values, and beliefs. And of course, if you look around our city, our city is a place that attracts a certain type of ideology, a certain type of mindset. And Portland is a place where people of similar values, similar tastes, similar belief systems cluster together. And it's easy for us to kind of look at that and maybe poke our finger at it. But people are leaving places where they feel like a cultural outsider and relocating to places that reflect their values. But what about the church? How are we doing at welcoming all who will come? John Green, who's a pollster at the University of Akron, says, these days people are unlikely to meet many at church whose politics differ from their own. The forces of group polarization are at work within the sanctuary too. To the extent that people receive information from congregations, they are likely to have that information reinforced by the people they worship with, and it becomes like having a big filter, welcoming people who are similar, like-minded, who make us comfortable, who share our same life world, is common because it's so easy. Whenever things get messy, at in town whenever things get messy whenever there's conflict i take heart in the fact that this has been happening for all of church history almost the entire new testament exists because doing life together is hard it's difficult we have all of these epistles in the bible because paul and peter and john were having to intervene and settle disputes you see these churches were cropping up in a very pluralistic setting And they were made up of religious Jews and Gentiles, pagans and religious, poor and the rich, the formerly oppressors and formerly oppressed. And they were being told, all of them together, that because Jesus was risen, that they not only had to get along together to tolerate one another, but to love one another intentionally, to do life together, and to throw open the doors to any and everyone who would come in. It was messy then, and it's messy now. But notice what Jesus is telling this host. He's telling the host that your party is lame. It's homogeneous. It's milk toast. Then Jesus said to this host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may be able to pay you back. See social currency, reciprocity, comfort, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now this list is not meant to be exhaustive, it's representative. Those Jesus lists serve no utilitarian purpose to the person who is hosting the meal. Instead, they demand something. They have burdens to be carried. They come with their hunger. They come with their needs. He's speaking 
in a gathering at a prominent Pharisee's house, a highly religious, highly moral group, and he's very blunt. You're, you've missed it, and your party sucks. Those people who were pious and scrupulous in their devotional duties, they know their theology, they're ethical superstars in their own mind, they've earned a seat. And friends, this is how many people outside these walls see us. The church is seen as speaking truth to those outside while giving grace to those inside, when instead we should be giving grace to those outside and speaking truth to those inside. What Jesus is describing, however, is not just responding to who shows up. It's not just responding in grace, but he says, invite When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. You will receive an eternal reward. Now, as I said, however, there's a cost involved to throwing a banquet where everyone is welcome. Because you see, someone might not bring the casserole dish for the potluck. They might just bring their hunger. They might share things openly They might share their doubts, their addictions, their sexual preferences that make us feel uncomfortable. Now, as I pray, oftentimes as I'm opening the sermon, the pastoral prayer, I often pray that, you know, we all have different pathways that we're on. We all have different journeys. We all bring different baggage. But the thing that's the same about us is that it's no accident that any of us are here. You see, I'm a good Presbyterian And I believe that he is drawing people to the church intentionally and through his power. And we believe as Presbyterians that God is orchestrating things according to his sovereign plan for his glory and for our good. Now we could believe, because of that, that God is placing people in our lives for us to speak into theirs. And that may be true. Or we could just as easily, easily think that it's so that he can speak into our lives through them. Have you thought about that? The people that are coming here by no accident, they may need to hear from us, of course, but we also may need to hear from them. And what if he's trying to remind us in this passage that the only one who... that only the one who has been embraced in their worst will be able to extend embrace to those we consider to be in their worst. Jesus is co-opting this person's party. He's committing the biggest party foul. He's even challenging the host and saying, this isn't a party. This is a social gathering. If you'd let me write the list, then we'd have a party. Friends, what we need to see is that this really isn't our party at all. And we're not inviting people into our church. We're not making room at our table, but it's God's party, and it's God's church, and it's God's table. And he says, therefore, go out into the roads. This is verse 23, which we didn't read. Go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full He doesn't say, first, compel them to change. He says, compel them to come. He doesn't say, first of all, make sure you address their bad behavior, but 
come to the party. Invite them to the party. You see, change is not a condition for welcome. And for that, we should all be grateful. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. Change is not a condition to come to God. It's a consequence of knowing God. Jesus asks everything of us to follow Him, but nothing of us to be loved by Him. Change is a condition, not a condition to come to God. It's a consequence of knowing God. He asks everything of us to follow Him and nothing of us to be loved by Him. And as we enter into the church, as we encounter His grace, as we encounter His teaching, we come to realize that everything about our lives is up for grabs by Jesus. Everything about who we are is to be brought into submission to Him. Our money, our possessions, our future, our ambitions, our sexuality, all of it is to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus asked everything of us to follow Him, nothing of us to be loved by Him. Change is always a consequence of knowing Him, not a condition to come to Him. The gospel is the good news that God has not turned His back on sinners like you and like me. In fact, He offers His eternal welcome, His eternal abiding friendship. And as you take hold of that salvation, of that friendship, which you invited you in and I in when we were a stranger, you begin to sense your own heart making room for strangers. When you see yourselves as being brought in when you had need, you see yourself and your heart being softened to those who have needs towards a person who's different from you. You begin to speak truth to yourself and grace to the outsider. Friends, God has, has constantly kept this idea in front of His followers, and yet it's still so hard for us to get it. He constantly says to the nation of Israel, you were the stranger, you were the outsider, you were the outcast, and I brought you in. Exodus 23 says, you shall not oppress a stranger, you know the heart of a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And this experience of vulnerability, of utter dependence, in God's mind, was meant to yield sympathy and yield vulnerability and graciousness to others. When we see ourselves as utter strangers brought in only by the mercy of God, we begin to extend that same mercy to others. And when we understand the way that God has gone out of His way to accommodate us and our story, and our baggage, and love us despite of that, and we begin to go out of our way to accommodate others. Gainesville State High School is a high school in North Texas, and their football team is the Tornadoes. And they have helmets, and they have jerseys, and they have practice just like any other team, but they don't have a home field. In fact, every game is on the road. And when they go home, a large gate shuts behind them because they're living in a maximum security prison for juvenile offenders. So they're 0-8 for the year. They have no fans, no parents to travel to see them play. 
and they're traveling to Faith Christian of Grapevine, Texas, a football powerhouse. And the tornadoes are coming to play on their turf, and it would be expected in the cutthroat culture of Texas football to exploit every home field advantage to get the victory. But the coach of faith, Chris Hogan, has a different idea of what the game is all about. What they do is they decide to donate half of their fans and cheerleaders to the tornadoes. They even create a spirit line at the beginning of the game so that the tornadoes can run through this huge banner and the fans boo when a call goes against the tornadoes. And they cheer when the tornadoes tackle their sons. They cheer for them by name. And when asked why, Coach Hogan says, imagine if you didn't have a home. Imagine if everybody had pretty much given up on you. Now imagine what it would mean for hundreds of people to suddenly believe in you. The tornadoes are, of course, no match for Faith Christian. But for the first time, the tornadoes know what it's like to play a home field, a home game. For the first time, they know what it's like to have people cheering for them, to have fans, to have parents in the stands rooting for them. The tornadoes leave handcuffed in a bus with metal bars on the windows, but they receive a care package from the players of Faith Christian. It's a burger, some fries, a soda, some candy, a Bible, and an encouraging letter. They felt human, valued, and loved, maybe for the first time in a very long time. They're in tears as they leave because Faith Christian didn't see their home as a place to be defended, but as a place to serve and extend the love of Jesus to people who hadn't felt that before. Friends, that's what I want us to be about, and I hope you'll join me. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we all need your grace. We all need your strength. We all need your compassion. Lord, the world is a hurting place, and it's a confusing place, and we don't have the answers. In fact, the world isn't really asking us for answers. They're not even mad at us anymore because we're irrelevant. Father, I pray that you would help us not to seek to be relevant, not to seek artificial friendships, but to befriend the world, to befriend those who are hurting, to befriend those who need grace, just because we know we need grace so badly. Lord, I pray that we would extend grace to one another and that you would create unity in this body, that you would gather the resources that are in this body so that we can serve, so that we can give, just as you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.